0: Well, I'm glad that I'm going to say something quite different from what Robert said and also something quite different from Victoria said. Um, I don't agree with with Robert's theme, I think, which is that Brexit reveals the difference between the United Kingdom and the rest of of Europe. Um, In some ways, if you adopt that view, then Brexit seems like quite a quaint um, British affair. Um, And there's something almost, I would suggest, almost reassuring about that particular explanation. Um, and let me just, uh, I mean, I'm going to say something very, very different, I think. Um, but I also don't agree with Victoria. Um, I think the result was, in many ways, much more contingent than your analysis uh, suggests when you gave this sort of long-term historical perspective. Um, I think it was much more surprising and much more contingent than, uh, than that analysis suggested. Now, it's certainly true that the, um, the referendum itself um, didn't have a lot to say about the EU. Um, Those of you who uh, followed the referendum campaign, and those of you may know quite a lot about the European Union, you probably find yourselves wondering, why are they not really talking about the EU that much? This is, after all, um, a referendum on the UK's EU membership. Um, Now it was a decision by the Remain campaign, um, and I remember speaking with the Remain campaigner about why this was the case, but they simply decided not to campaign on the EU very much. Um, He told me that they did some some focus group work and a few polls at the very beginning and found that there were no votes in really talking about the EU. Um, So they decided to focus relentlessly, I think, and very uh, consistently on the dangers of leaving, and particularly the economic consequences of leaving. Um, And the government was very good at marshalling together the the, the core institutions of the British state, uh, such as the Treasury, the Central Bank, to make this case about the dangerous consequences of leaving. Now, that may or may not be true. I mean, a lot of it was was speculation, however well-informed it was, but it wasn't really an argument about the nature of European integration. Now, on the Leave side, they focused pretty relentlessly on immigration. Um, now, free movement is a core part of the single market, but their message in many ways didn't focus that much on the EU either. Now, people have often concluded that the referendum was just off topic. Um, it just didn't touch on the core topic. People were somehow misled. They were taken down this garden path of talking about everything but the, the EU. I don't really buy that argument. I don't think the content of the campaign was simply irrational or people were misled to, to, to considering things that were irrelevant to the question, uh, the question being asked. It depends very much on what you think the European Union is. Um, now, people have often asked me that question. I always try to refuse to answer by you know, uh, giving all the jargon. So I try and give an, ar- an answer that doesn't have the jargon. Um, and I say it's a bit like a mirage. Um, now, we know how a mirage works. It's on the horizon. It's very tangible and clear. Um, as you get closer, it starts to shimmer and move. And you finally get to the heart of it, it's gone. Okay, that's the way a mirage works. Now, the European Union is a bit like that. Um, seen from Cambridge, from London, from national capitals around EU member states, from across Europe, in fact, it seems pretty tangible. It has its own institutions, its own buildings, it has its own officials, its own laws, it has the authority to to shut down national banks, it would seem. But as you get closer, as you get to the heart of Brussels, as you get to the European quarter, this mirage starts to shimmer and tremble, and it does eventually disappear. Um, And what you find at the heart of the European Union are its member states, are its member state governments. Um, The ones that fill the Thales trains, the TGV trains to to Brussels are national officials, civil servants who regularly go to Brussels to to, to deliberate and discuss amongst themselves on detailed regulatory questions. Our own ministers always traveling to Brussels. Uh, Ministers, I think, in this country won't know what to do with themselves if they don't don't have to, on a weekly basis, travel to to Brussels. How are they going to fill their diaries? Um, So at the heart of uh, the European Union are our governments, Now, if that's the case, uh, and I would make a very strong claim that that is the case, then the the content of the referendum campaign becomes a lot less irrational. Um, Because I think at the heart of the referendum campaign was really the question of the quality of the relationship between citizens and government, between politicians and voters, between the public and, uh, and the government. Now, I think the reason for that, and this is something which Again, this this hints at the fact that this is not a British phenomenon at all. The reason why the quality of the relationship between governments and their citizens was was at the heart of the, the, the EU's referendum campaign um, is because we live, I think, in the age of the crisis of party democracy. Um, I'm a big fan of the late Irish political scientist Peter Mayer, um, and he had the term hollowing out of democracy. Um, and he made a very compelling argument, which I think applies to 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 many Western democracies, and it applies to the UK, uh, which is that over the last 30 to 40 years, politicians have systematically retreated into the state, and citizens have retreated into their their own private spheres, their own private lives. And what's left is what Peter Mayer describes as the void. And the task of politicians in the 21st century in advanced industrial democracies such as ours is how does one govern across the void? I think that is probably the most pressing question that we have to face today in this (coughs) country and a number of other countries. But it's also the case that the EU referendum was entirely caught up with the dynamics of the void, this gap between the public and uh, politicians. So let me just give give you some examples. Why did we have the referendum in the first place? We had the referendum in the first place because the Prime Minister was unable to discipline properly his own party. Now, Euroscepticism has been a a long-standing tradition within the Tory party, but uh, Tory uh, Prime Ministers have not been obliged to hold referendums. When Cameron won uh, uh, the election in 2015, we tend to imagine that it was somehow a return to politics as normal. He managed to get a majority in, in, in place. His majority was paper thin. It was such a thin majority that over the course of a normal parliament, where on average a certain number of MPs do die, um, Cameron would have lost his majority. It was that thin. Um, so he was unable to discipline his party and he was unable to really account on some sort of powerful parliamentary majority. So it was the weakness uh, of Cameron politically as a figure and in relationship to his own party and his own supporters uh, that pushed him to organise this, this referendum, which he thought in his characteristic style would, would be okay. Um, and it wasn't in the end, but it was his weakness that led us there. It's also the case that however we play... Um, the campaign, it is inevitable as a conclusion that the Remain side was seen as somehow an establishment force and the Leave side was seen as anti-establishment. Now that may seem ridiculous to those of you who know the Johnson family and know uh, of Boris Johnson, his brothers and sisters. It's a, a pretty preposterous thing, but nevertheless, that is how it was understood and I think it corresponds quite well to the way these campaigns were run. The complacency on the side of the Remain campaign was was flabbergasting. Um, Their assumption that they didn't have to try that hard because basically they would win. On the Leave side, no, there was a conviction that they were really pushing people to challenge the status quo. And so that's how these these two campaigns were seen. One was on the establishment side and the other one was challenging the establishment. The final thing is what the the referendum campaign brought out was a very deep-seated hostility um, to the very idea that anybody can speak for anybody else with any sort of authority or conviction. Um, Robert mentioned uh, Michael Goh's famous statement about not liking experts. I've got another story which, is, uh, which has to be my favourite. Um, the person running this programme here, the UK and a changing Europe, Anne and Menon, um, Catherine, you may have been there, I don't know. Uh, it was a public meeting. Uh, and Annan Menna was saying something wrong about GDP. He said something like, the UK's GDP is actually pretty good compared to a number of other Eurozone countries that have been stagnating, etc." And somebody from the back of the audience sort of stood up and said, that's your GDP, not mine. Mm-hmm. Now, in some ways, it seems ridiculous. You know, how can you reduce aggregate data to mine or yours? The nature of aggr- aggregate data is that it isn't either yours nor mine, it's aggregate data. On the other hand, this person is quite right. What he's saying is that these figures you're throwing at me do not correspond in any way to my, uh, my experience, my day-to-day experience. You're saying the UK is pretty good economically. Well, I, I don't feel it. It, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't come home to, to me. Um, now, all these things together, I think, are symptoms of what Peter Mayer called, uh, called the void. That, I think, is what shaped, shaped the campaign. It's also what gave it its, uh, its contingency as well. It could have also gone the other way. Um, when politics is governed and shaped around the phenomenon of this void, it is very unpredictable. Okay. Let me just say a final, a final thing. Um, it's this question about whether this is a uniquely British affair. Okay. Um, and this, I think, is, is where I, I disagree with, with Robert. I think the UK is remarkably like the rest of, of Europe. Okay. Um, and I would put it to you that the best way or the better way to think about Brexit is as a kind of iceberg. Now Brexit is the, is the visible bit of the iceberg but we all know the way icebergs work is they're pretty big below the surface and actually what matters is not what is visible, it's what lies below, okay? what lies in the depths below the surface of the, of the water. Um, now I think Brexit is an iceberg and what lies below are other member states across Europe um, um, and the, the force and the power of this void in shaping domestic politics in a number of other European member states. Uh, So, let me just give you some examples. This idea that it could never happen somewhere else, that Britain is somehow a special case. Well, the Dutch had a good go. Um, You know, the Dutch uh, organized a referendum on the EU's association agreement with the Ukraine. Uh, This was on the basis of citizen signatures. It was not organized by the government. The government was obliged to to do so because citizens, uh, people, the group that was pushing got enough signatures. Uh, The government lost that referendum. And if you talk to people who organized this campaign, they say very clearly this was a warm-up event. This was a warm-up event for the real deal, which will be a Dutch referendum on on its own EU membership. Now, the far-right leader, Geert Wilders, had a go at putting that through uh, the Dutch parliament, but because of the constitutional rule that obliges um, anybody who wants to have a referendum on a constitutional issue to win a two-thirds majority in the parliament, Wilders, Wilders lost. Now, next year after the Dutch elections, Wilders might be in quite a commanding position within government. And it's not impossible to imagine that he could commandeer a two-thirds majority for a Dutch referendum on its EU membership. So these are the things that are around the corner. If you look at Italy, um, Italy is going to have a referendum at the beginning of December on a constitutional <coughs> reform package that, Renzi's, that the Prime Minister Matteo Renzi is desperately trying to sell to the Italian people. Now, Renzi has said, and he's backtracking now, but um, it's quite possible that he would have to resign were he to lose this referendum. It is looking like it's, um, it's quite possible that he will lose. Now, what are the opposition forces in Italy? The Northern League, the Five Star Movement. These are the main opposition forces in Italy. Both of them are committed to a referendum on Euro membership. Not EU membership so far, but Euro membership. Uh, I, I could go on. There are lots of other examples. France is an interesting example. Um, the candidate that's most likely to get onto the second, uh, the, get the second stage in next year's presidential elections is Marine Le Pen. And she is the one that speaks most forcefully about Frexit and has committed her party to organising a, a referendum on France's EU membership. Um, so I think it, it would be naive I think to suggest that this is a uniquely British, uh, British phenomenon. So just to conclude then, what's basically happened, I think, is that um, Euroscepticism, which has been around for some time and was in many ways a marginal political position you know, in the UK as much as anywhere else, euroskepticism has fused with a much broader, deeper um, and more general sentiment, which I would describe as anti, anti-politics, anti-establishment. And those two together are beginning already to quite fundamentally transform the way the European Union operates. Um, it's become significantly more intergovernmental. Um, over the last couple of decades, and I think part of that reflects this, um, this fusion of Euroscepticism with, with anti-establishment sentiment. Um, now, I think of a lot of this, uh, to, to, to finish, I think a lot of this is quite positive. Um, um, I think that there's an opportunity here, uh, there's an opportunity here to recast what we describe as the European Union as something else, um, as a more genuinely internationalist project rather than a tired project of of federalism, which is increasingly battled against national democracy to to move forward. But that depends on one thing, and it depends on the political left being willing to embrace and take back the language of popular sovereignty and democracy that today across Europe almost uniquely belongs to the far right, to people like Wilders, uh, Marine Le Pen, Matteo Salvini, and others. And that's a pretty big challenge, but